0: This is, um, this is episode 83 of the Steptoe Cyber Law podcast, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, and we're delighted that we're doing it in front of a live audience, uh, uh, at the IAPP Privacy Academy and the, uh, Cloud Security Alliance, uh, Congress, uh, um, event, uh, uh, we are, uh, we're longtime fans of both organizations, and we're delighted to be here in front of a live audience. Um, it, with me today, we're going to be doing a session of our uh, weekly podcast, uh, uh, and uh, I'm really pleased that uh, we're joined today by Bruce Schneier, who is uh, uh, one of the most uh, noted uh, privacy uh, and uh, technical analysts. uh um, in the field, uh, and the author of Data and Goliath. Uh, um, hopefully, he'll be signing his books here later uh, uh, in the uh, day. Uh, and by Alan Cohn, who uh, was a former uh, DHS policy official, uh, uh, now of counsel to Steptoe and Johnson, and of course, I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the National Security Agency, formerly with the Department of Homeland Security and holding the record for returning to practice law at Steptoe and Johnson the most number of times. Uh, uh, so those of you who are podcast listeners uh, already know that, uh, and I've occasionally been asked, what does it take to set the record? Five returns is what it takes. Uh, uh, what we are going to do uh, today, I think, is take advantage of the fact that Bruce is here, uh, who can give us a longer perspective and a more technical perspective on the news. So we'll be going through some of the stories over the last uh, uh, few weeks uh, uh, and plumbing Bruce's unique combination of technical uh, and policy expertise uh, uh, and the fact that um, I almost always disagree with his policy views. Uh, uh, so why don't we just jump right in, uh, uh, if that's okay. Uh, probably that Biggest issue and certainly one of concern to everyone uh, here uh, is the prospect that there will be a decision from the European Court of Justice next week on the uh, lawfulness of the safe harbor uh, in the Shrems case uh, uh, that came up out of uh, Ireland. Uh, uh the Irish court actually just asked, uh, are we bound by, completely bound by the fact that uh, the uh, um, uh, European Commission has negotiated the safe harbor and concluded that the U.S., uh, government has provided adequate uh, safeguards and therefore we're going to permit uh, data flows across the Atlantic? Uh, or can the Data Protection Authority of Ireland take a- another look at the question? Um, it, we saw this week a, a decision or an opinion written by Yves Bott, uh, uh, the French advocate general to the uh, European Court of Justice, who plays a kind of advisory role but a very influential role uh, in which he said uh, so you asked me can uh, uh, can the Irish uh, DPA reconsider uh, the safe harbor? The answer is yes. In fact, they're obliged to. In fact, I'll tell you how the case should come out. Uh, a, you should reject the uh, um, uh, adequacy determination uh, because I read in the, in the newspapers about uh, Edward Snowden and uh, this can't be right. Uh, that's It's a little more sophisticated than that, but really that's about it. Um, a, if the European Court of Justice follows this, um, it's going to be a Big deal uh, uh, for uh, US EU relationships and for every company that is relying on the safe harbor, which is practically everybody who moves data. Uh, uh, Bruce, your sense of what this means in a broader perspective.
1: Yeah, you know, I think this is just one example of the problem we have with national laws on privacy and an international Internet. I mean, this is going to be the new and a big deal because it's U.S.
0: Oh, but you do Euro- not understand. The European Union is international.
1: So, but yeah, and, and they are. And, and, you know, you could say United States and whatever countries we deal with are also. But there's going to be collisions where what's legal in my country is illegal in your country. There's lots of examples of that from... Uh, Uh, decency, to political speech, and and countries are different, and this is one of them. I think this is an important one. It's going to be really interesting how this shakes out and and what companies like Apple and Google and Facebook that rely on internationally moving data around just to survive. We we do that for liability purposes. What does that mean? How does that work? It's, 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 it's a big deal. But this is, this has been a long time coming. I mean, Safe Harbor has always been a patch, which we kinda knew this wouldn't work, but we're gonna pretend for a while. And it doesn't come to a head now, it'll come to a head in a few years, so. I don't know, I think better sooner than later, but how this shakes out, I have no idea.
0: So we, we, we have been negotiating with the European Union over the adequacy of uh, U.S. law for data protection purposes for at least 15 years. I, I led some of those negotiations over uh, travel reservation data, and when we beat the European Union in those negotiations, as we did, uh, I gave my entire team, uh, uh, once we had the adequacy finding, uh, underwear that said right in the front... Um, European Union certified adequate. Um, as a celebration of uh, uh, their, we yeah, uh, had to
1: collect uh, all those back.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid we will. Uh, well, and 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 maybe I will. I will not make remarks about this administration and its adequacy uh, in that department or others. No, I, I think that we best leave that alone. Uh, you negotiated some of these as well, Alan, didn't you? You got involved in the negotiations. Uh, the options here are really stark if the European Court of Justice goes in the same direction as both. And, and they probably will. I mean, I, the, the oral argument was hostile. Uh, the... Uh, Chief Judge of this panel is, if I remember right, a uh, um, very uh, uh, hostile to uh, uh, government compared to civil liberties. He struck down the data retention law, if I remember. Uh, so there's no reason to think that they won't go here other than perhaps a reluctance to rely on fact findings that, uh, like, like Boat's opinion that are just, uh, well, I read it
2: in the newspaper, so it must be true. I think that's right, and, it, and it's it's interesting. It falls against a backdrop of the administration trying to do as much as it can to accommodate, uh, you know, in in each of these different places. Um, even the uh, the sanctity of the agreement that that you once negotiated. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, they, they 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 gave up a lot. I I think this also probably puts at risk the umbrella agreement uh, on okay. uh, criminal justice data that uh, was just negotiated with great fanfare right, uh, and the. Congress, in a remarkable bit of uh, bipartisanship, uh, making is preparing to pass a law that would give a variety of legal rights to European uh, citizens. I can't see that surviving a determination that uh, uh, data is going to get cut off.
1: The difference really isn't in implementation; it's in philosophy. And when you have a difference at that level, reaching an agreement becomes a lot harder. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in Safe Harbor, I think the practical reality is the internet won. We have to do this, otherwise it's going to fall apart.
0: That's my guess, too. It's sort of inconceivable. But, you know, once you get in the courts saying, well, this is a a practical matter, inconceivable, it's so easy for the justices to get up on their high horses and say, but this is a matter of European Convention of Human Rights and uh, guarantees of... And it is. It's a matter of
1: philosophy. And and someone's philosophy doesn't necessarily win. and, And you... We have these bifurcations in Singapore, we have them in China, we have them everywhere.
0: Well, the irony here is that um, all of the limitations that are proposed uh, and the objections that have been made to uh, uh, NSA's programs uh, are objections that could not be made about France's programs or a program or the UK's programs under existing European law. At least they never have been
1: But successfully at least made. it's their programs as opposed to our programs. Well, so that's there's, right. And there's strong nationalism
0: here yeah so I, I I think we we could face a situation. My guess is they will say, as they have in other cases, uh, here's the decision uh, you've got six months or a year to come into compliance because we know it's too hard to uh, to come into compliance uh, very fast, creating a kind of negotiating disaster and a deadline nah, um, that's what they did in one of my cases uh, okay uh, the other piece of news. This is all, um, practically all European and U.S. Uh, news and interactions between the two. Uh, I, and, and in many cases, there'll be a theme here, or at least in my commentary. Uh, VW um, got caught uh, building software that would lie to the EPA when the EPA tested their, uh, their diesel engines uh, uh, so that it would be very well behaved and Perfectly emissions compliant uh, when it was up on the rack being tested, and as soon as it got out on the highway, the emissions went up forty times, which is kind of staggering if you've ever driven behind a, a diesel. Uh, um, and it seems to me that that raises some real questions about how the Internet of Things is actually going to work. Uh, 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 this is an Internet of Things um, uh, uh, problem, it, it seems to me. It's the
1: Internet of cheating things, <laughs> uh, and uh, this is uh, this is actually very serious. We, we, I mean, cheating on emissions tests is as old as emissions tests, and there, there's long histories of cheating and getting caught and, and fines. But being able to do it by computer is different. You can do it far removed from the testing site. You could have a much smaller conspiracy. It could, it's conceivable that the people who put the cheat in left and don't even remember and no one in the company knows that it's there. They, they got away with it for six years. You know, my fear is not that companies will look at that, look at this and say, my god, that's a really horrible fine, but you mean I can get away with this for six years? That's awesome. I mean, in a very short time way of, way of thinking.
0: Yeah, and if, they, I, if you don't admit it, you can probably get away with it even longer. Because
1: they cheated very sloppily. They cheated in a way that it's obvious they cheated. When you start thinking about building in malicious code in a deniable way, which you know people have done research on, I've written papers on it, you can build in cheats that when they're detected, you can plausibly say, oops, that was a mistake. Not that this is obviously cheating code. And yeah, I, and, and we're gonna see lots of, of devices that follow regulations, whether they're light bulbs or voting machines, and testing them is going to be a bigger problem.
0: I think um, some of the big telecom equipment uh, that's been sold uh, uh, and reviewed, uh, there have been I, I, cases in which uh, uh, people found uh, unexplained callbacks to the home office, uh, and when challenged about it, the manufacturer said,
1: oh, oh, that's an undocumented feature. I'm sorry, but if you want us to take it out, we'll take it out. Or it's a feature left in a test, or it's a programming mistake. I mean, these things happen a lot, and we worry about switch software coming from China, they worry about switch software coming from the United States, we're all sort of worried about this, and it's a different threat model. Normally when we think of emissions control software, we want to defend against the car owner modifying the car after he purchased it to run dirtier and faster. This is different, this is the manufacturer building in a design flaw from the beginning, and it's not a security model we've thought about. Well, and I'm not sure that the necessarily, the, a, a
0: smarter response to this might have been to outsource this to somebody, have a little contest to see who can do the best job of making sure that your uh, car runs well on the highway and also
1: meets the emission test. And, and then, then you don't ask too many questions about how the code works. And this sort of speaks in general to the, the notion of having this code available to review. And this was discovered by two, indep- not by governments, by two independent lands, one in the U.S., one in Germany. But not by looking at the code. Not by looking at the code, because they couldn't look at the code.
2: And in fact, they wanted to, they were looking at the at the outset to try to show how good the diesel engines were. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And, and for, you know, Christian uh, uh, Lovejoy said that this, this morning in the, in the opening, right, technologies... Privacy practitioners hate offer the opportunity to solve the security problems well what if they also have the opportunity to cheat on the the oversight um, to defeat uh, the the ability to, to you know to, to check uh, to provide that check
0: well there we go so oh was that data going back to the United States oh what? oh so silly that was just an added feature we're sorry we didn't mean it uh, uh, maybe this will solve the safe harbor problem <laughs> uh, okay, uh, well, my, my one problem with the solution that you're hinting at, which is that, you know, we should be able to see the code, is um, we can see, we can, the U.S. government has demanded the code, the Chinese have demanded the code, uh, the Indians have demanded the code for things like uh, uh, Windows operating systems, uh. You know, good luck to them. There's, there's no way you can read millions of lines of code and figure out what's being done with that uh, uh, and whether somebody is using it to cheat. Well, I certainly wouldn't say you have to
1: s- disclose it only to governments. When you say reveal the code, is reveal the code to anyone who wants to see the code. I mean, they, we're, we're at the point now these algorithms are making very powerful decisions. Right, I've read a couple of articles this week on predictive policing algorithms. Algorithms are deciding where police is deployed in our cities and they're doing it in some secret way and that, that, that seems a little dangerous. But if you voting get- machine code is, is an even worse example. It's deciding elections and we're not allowed to see how it does that. Code that, that has to meet regulatory standards needs to be viewed by lots of people. And you're right, if, if the government gets it, it's, it's just going to be one group doing some analysis. You need lots of different people And not just looking at it, but the potential for them to look at it. How many people are going to look at that to find
0: the the cheat? And how, as compared to the number of people who look at it to come up with a way
1: to cheat? Because the the irony here is that the end user wants to cheat too. That's right. So so you have to block them from changing the code, but making it public means more people will. I mean, how many, we had at least two groups looking at this problem, even though they couldn't get the code. If they got the code, maybe they would have got it three years earlier, maybe four years earlier. Now it is not going to solve the problem, but code is now too important to hide in many
2: cases. But that backs up to your, uh, to your earlier point. I mean, if it's difficult enough to get people to, to share code about how admissions work, how can a police department share the code uh, in which it's making decisions where to station its officers when to use the same analogy? You know, there's more people out there who want to know that information for nefarious purposes uh, than there are for, for, for oversight purposes. But
1: if the algorithm is good, it can survive that. I mean, the best algorithms will survive public scrutiny. and that's, We do that in cryptography. Lots of ways we can do that. So, so you can't assume – if you don't assume your algorithm is secret <clears> – <throat> You'll design a better algorithm, and, and they're going to be predictive policing algorithms that will predict that the predictive policing police will police the predictive policing algorithms and respond accordingly.
2: Well, well maybe the BW engineers could get involved and, and say, well, if it's the, <laughs> the criminal is looking, then we're going to obfuscate the, uh, the code. So. I, mean, I, I worry about election
1: software that operates normally until the first week of November every four years.
0: Yeah, I worry about election software, period. It's, it's, period, it's, right. It's, it's nuts. Uh, you know, they should have optical scanners, and, and the rest is, it should be, uh, you know, just a matter of counting ones and twos. And that's 100% correct. Uh, okay, um, so but, we also have this deal with China in which the uh, uh, both governments have now said they have foresworn... Uh, Cyber espionage for commercial advantage of private companies uh, um, and the debate seems to be between people who think it's a it 's worth a try if we really uh, uh, do our best to enforce it, uh, and people who believe it'll never work. Uh, I tend to actually be in the softer camp, which is I see some real advantages to this. Uh, uh, and I had a, a discussion with Jim Lewis last week. Uh, uh, but I thought I'd ask you, do you think that uh, this is a sustainable agreement?
1: I don't know. I think it's a good idea. I think that uh, the process of international agreements and treaties is, is years and decades long, and it's, it's lots of little steps. And finding things you can agree on even if you actually are gonna cheat the next day moves the process and so it's, it's really worth doing. I don't think you can actually have a detection or an enforcement regime that, that will work. I think there are gonna be a lot of loopholes. I mean this whole notion of economic espionage versus commercial espionage is very fuzzy and how it's defined and this has always been a debate. You know, it, it's, it, we in we the United States will say, we don't do commercial espionage, away, which we mean we don't spy on foreign companies and pass that information on to domestic companies. probably well, because we wouldn't even know who to call. Right. But what we do, spy on foreign companies and use that information in things like trade negotiations. And, and we call that economic espionage. And that's a distinction that makes a lot of sense in, in, in our country, in our, in our market system, they're very different. You go to China, and, and that difference doesn't make as much sense when, con- when the country controls a lot of the industries. So I'm not quite sure where the line is drawn. I mean, the devil's in the details here. I'm not sure if China... Do you think China will actually follow this?
0: Um, well, it'll be more th- denial? Th- they, they're going to continue to deny it. They may even, at the central party level, say don't do this. The question is whether the PLA is going to uh, follow this, and I think that's much less likely because for the PLA, uh, this is kind of a crony espionage. You can, you can do the commercial espionage for your buddies, and pass stuff on to them, and they'll take care of you. Uh, and that's a closed loop that uh, the
1: Chinese are pretty familiar with. And there's also several levels of espionage coming out of China. There's the state-sponsored the, the stuff we can hear about as APT, but there's also a lot of cyber militia, just sort of freelance actors that hack with impunity and just know if they find something good, they pass it along.
0: Well, and, and you know, it, it used to be the case that uh, if you made sneakers in China, you ran two shifts... Uh, making your sneakers. He and the sneakers,
1: the footwear, not the
0: movie. Right. And, and then the third shift was making it for the factory owner and he was selling it out the back door. Uh, my guess is the PLA operates pretty similarly that uh, a lot of those cyber militias are just PLA guys going home and doing it from, from home.
1: But it is interesting that we got an agreement. I mean, I think it, it says that both countries are realizing that this is getting out of hand and that we need to do something even if it's just for show. And my hope is if if we get this working somehow, we can come up with other things that we both agree on, like you know, don't hack our hospitals or or you know, no first strike if there are no existing hostilities. Now I can sort of make these up, I'm not a treaty guy. But you know, we've got to, get to find the things that are are bad to us and bad to them, and then agree, and then maybe we can move into things that are actually difficult. But this is gonna be a slow process so
0: your 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 reference to sort of non proliferation talks and, and and arms control treaties uh, i think ties in, interestingly, to another topic that especially the security folks in this room are probably familiar with, which is export controls on, in, on hacker tools, penetration testing, uh, uh, surveillance uh, tools, uh, all of which are very bad things if they're used by hackers, and all of which are used by security professionals to check the uh, strength of their security. And I know, Alan, you've been deeply involved with that for a coalition of uh, uh, companies. What's the, what's the current status of that?
2: Well, that's right. So for, for anyone who hasn't been following this issue, this is, uh, this is the, the Wassenaar arrangement, the group of 41 countries that meets to, uh, to agree on export control provisions. In 2013, they added controls on items that generate, operate, deliver, or communicate intrusion software and also carrier-class IP network surveillance items. So the U.S. waited for a year and a half to go ahead and implement regulations. Um, they put out a proposed rule in May, um, and pretty much everyone following the issue weighed in and said, this is a really it, bad This sucks, idea. yes. Yeah. Um, so the Commerce Department, which administers this rule, has now pulled the, that back uh, and is engaging in a new round of industry uh, engagement with the intention of putting out a new rule after the first of the year. However, um, events elsewhere may not let the Commerce Department because well, the Because the, Europe,
0: uh, the Europeans are in it again. And yes. the Europeans' idea now is that we should have tougher export controls. They've never, in, in, my, in my time watching export controls, it never has there been a time when the Europeans wanted tougher export controls than the United States until now. Uh, uh, They have always wanted the U.S. to have tough controls, and they would have easier controls for their local champions.
2: Right. And and this is an interesting case, and it it ties right back to the the discussion that you were having. Is Is it better to have an agreement that nobody's following, or is it better to have an argument over what the agreement should be? And in this case, we seem to be having... You know, this everyone's trying to to one up themselves as to well, let's make it better, let's let's make it stronger, let's make it tighter, but nobody's actually doing anything on the back. My 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 theory is this is
0: the revenge of all the people who lived through the first crypto wars in the '90s, watching NSA insist on encryption controls on source code for uh, uh, anything that had encryption in it, and they said, wow, that's such a powerful, ugly tool in the wrong hands, uh, and now that. they're they're in control, at least, of the State Department, uh, they say, hey, remember that really ugly tool? We could use that, Uh, and we could use that to keep these hacker tools out of the hands of authoritarian governments uh, uh, to foster Arab Spring and the like, uh, uh, and... And so that's you know the State Department is by far the biggest proponent of this bill, uh, and one of the proponents is the Human Rights uh, Bureau. But the other proponents, and this comes back to your point, uh, are the non-proliferation guys who would do the arms control treaties. And I'm thinking somebody there sat down and said, if we wanted to do arms control on cyber war, we'd have the problem that somebody else is making and using the weapons, not just the U.S. government. So we're going to have to be able to speak for those guys, and to speak for those guys, we need regulatory control over them. And so uh, some of the motivation for extending these, these pretty unworkable uh, rules is so that they can sit down and try to negotiate with other governments
1: about how they'll be used. Yeah, my guess is this is going to fail equally as bad as, as any of the export control rules. I mean, we've seen this before. The problem is that the tools we use for security have... Bad purposes in the wrong hands. So back in the 1990s, I know people remember Dan Farmer wrote, a, wrote the first vulnerability scanner. It was a program that automatically scanned for vulnerabilities, and it was called because he's Dan Farmer. It was called Satan, and it was really bad. Everyone actually, he had a little switch. If you if you didn't like the term, you could in the documentation you could change say, Satan to Santa. And then you could just print it out in your office. But that was considered a major hacking tool. And three years later, it was an industry of vulnerability scanners. And you can buy one right now that will scan your company's vulnerabilities. And it's a, it's a tool you probably use in your company. Just like uh, you have when, the, to. when The Loft came out with their – they also had a bad name uh, – their program that would break uh, weak passwords. And and that was another vulnerability scanner. You can scan your passwords and see which ones are weak and then tell those people to fix your password. Or I can scan your passwords and then break into your systems. And it was so sort we're of seeing that here with vulnerability information, with surveillance information, with the things that are going to be blocked are legitimate corporate tools for security, or legitimate government tools for law enforcement. And because you can't even say this country is off limits, because that country now has also security needs as well as surveillance wants. This is, this is not gonna, it's not only like not gonna end well, I don't think it's even gonna start, because it just can't.
0: Yeah, uh, one of our, one of our speakers today talked about how, uh, uh, when we're doxxed, it's a tragedy, but when other people are doxed, it's a comedy. Uh, and um, uh, this... Uh, some of this grows out of the uh, hacking team uh, uh, hack uh, uh, because it turns out that they were, even after Wassenaar, you can actually search through their documents for references to Wassenaar, uh, thanks to Wikipedia uh, Wikime- uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, and... Uh, um, they got from their government what looks like a global license. So at the end of the day, as you said, so uh, we've got so nominal so controls. So I have a question for you. Yep. When you search
1: through the hacking team documents, you call it looking for information, whatever you call it. When you search through the Snowden documents, it's believing some random news report. Uh, If you you go on this WikiLeaks site you like so much, you'll actually find both. No, no, I
0: had to to take a shower
1: after I did this. You know, that's because you have the clearance. (laughs) If you don't, it's it's better. Actually, we like reading these documents, whether it's Hacking Team or the NSA, because it really is this window into how these organizations operate. And certainly, as security people, understanding that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, I, I you know I, on, on on
0: Snowden I do think he gave away all kinds of documents that are just 20, fundamental. Twenty eight new ones
1: uh, as of last Friday. You can read.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think I NBC did a study, probably the dumbest uh, Snowden story to date, which is saying something, in which they said, Do you believe it? We read these documents, and it turns out the United States was spying on Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. When he came to the United States, can you believe it? I, I, if I can, you can find a scandal in that fact. This fight actually
1: is like the one thing NSA does that I'm proud we do. I mean, spying on foreign leaders—you would think would be in their charter? Yeah, especially cyber. people who
0: who want to rid the world of Zionists. Uh, with nukes,
1: or even Angela Merkel, right? I mean, spying on foreign leaders—that's go NSA. It's like the other 50 million Germans I tend to worry about. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I, I the other I, I will ask you about this. Uh, uh, the other thing that uh, I noticed from Snowden other than his Twitter account, uh, is that... Uh, with with, with, a, with, a, with a, like, a million followers, followers and, yeah. and,
1: and, and he's, he's following one person the NSA, which is mm-hmm. kind of neat.
0: That's cute. Uh, uh, he spoke to Neil deGrasse Tyson, and they got off on communications with extraterrestrials, and he said, well, I think we may be wasting our time doing all these ET uh, um, uh, reviews because any aliens with any brains are encrypting all their communications, it'll be indistinguishable from noise. So we'll never pick up the signal.
1: So you're assuming aliens have brains. This is interesting. Well, and, and a lack and of export control. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I, 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 I,
1: this probably wasn't on our topic, was it? Yeah, yeah,
0: no, it wasn't. I, I think, you know, the, the problem is that we do lots of broadcasting that's not encrypted, uh, except for IP purposes. So unless, the aliens are so benighted that they too have invented the DMCA. I think uh, uh, it 's unlikely that they 're encrypting everything they broadcast uh, uh, all right well so back to uh, more serious things uh, um, you know the the china thing the, there 's a little re- reverberation from that when it turned out that uh, China had stolen more uh, fingerprints uh, from OPM than originally um, uh, estimated, and that raised this question of you know. Why we're keeping uh, uh, fingerprints in that fashion, and maybe why we're using fingerprints for authentication on our iPhones.
1: I mean, I think it's a very interesting story. And the and, uh, way I think of it, there are sort of three basic kinds of privacy breaches. There's account information; someone steals credit card numbers, and they're doing that to commit fraud. And we're really good at dealing with that because those are the credentials we can replace. Any kind of credential if it's stolen, we can replace it. Second kind of privacy breach are personal information. Think of of Ashley Madison or a lot of the information in in the Sony case, emails.
0: Think think of Brian Krebs today. Name, Social Security, date of birth, uh, all the stuff that people steal first.
1: But I'm thinking of of really the personal embarrassments, the things you don't want released, your health information. And, And the thing about that is there's no way to recover. When that's out, when someone knows you have a disease that you didn't want to tell them, they know and they can never unknow it. Uh, this is different, right? This is a credential, but one that can't be replaced. If I can give you a new credit card, that's easy. I can't give you a new thumb. I have no way to do that. And so what that means is, for these five million people, they're Credential, their their biometric is out there somewhere. We think the Chinese, we don't know. It's never been officially confirmed by the U.S. government. It was sort of unofficially right. leaked, and or, or, or even if it's a bunch of criminals that have it. So you fast forward five years, ten years, twenty years. Some science fiction technology that uses your fingerprint for something. Those five million people have to worry that someone else, we don't know who, has a copy, and, and that's that's bad. So that, but that doesn't
0: that just mean we shouldn't be using. Um that biometric for authentication in the absence of controls on how it's being uh, there, there provided... There are lots of ways to
1: use it. So what was stolen were, were the raw fingerprint cards, I mean, the actual scan of the images. When you use your iPhone, the iPhone actually does not have a scan of your fingerprint. They, When you scan your finger, they make a one-way function of it, compare it the one-way function on file. So if it's stolen, and it's actually just on your phone, it's not in Apple's database... If it is pulled out of your phone, the person who gets it cannot reconstruct your finger. So they might be able to, but we haven't seen how it's happened yet, they might be able to break into your phone with it. They won't be able to break into the next application, the next application for the rest of your life. So there's smart ways to do biometrics that tend to involve keeping them locally, not in a central database, and then keeping one-way functions of them, not keeping the raw data. This was the worst of all possible. This was a central database of the raw data. And, yes, so the question is, why yeah, does you OPM know, you have can, this you online? Can, you,
0: can, you can think of reasons. Let's think about this for criminal uh, purposes. Uh, it's not like the criminals leave their fingerprint carefully rolled on the wall. Right, which so these you, were, unfortunately. Which, 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 which means that you can't use a, uh, a hash... Of a partial fingerprint, uh, to break the crime, even though you could use the partial fingerprint and compare it to the mm-hmm. actual analog fingerprint to determine whether it looks like it's a match.
1: But this is an inherent vulnerability in all our biometric databases. Yeah. You know, whatever they are, that if they, they can get stolen like this, the effects could be felt for decades. For a country like China to have biometric of 5 million US government employees, I don't think we've even begun to realize how bad that could be.
0: Aren't we? Well, first, I'm I'm willing to bet that my fingerprints are on many places on this phone. uh, If you wanted to lift them, and indeed, if I held my hand up like this and you took a high-def picture of the hand, you probably have my fingerprint. Right, right but, but the
1: difference is going to be individual versus in bulk. I mean, yes, it, it means like surveillance. Individually, the, the rules are different, the defenses are different. Getting them in bulk is something else entirely.
0: Yeah, but you know, all kind. every biometric is something that once it's given up mm-hmm. has to be, uh, can be compromised. Uh, your iris can be taken off of uh, a at, uh, high def uh, at, at photo. Sca- right, at distance. Yeah. Uh, face recognition, well, a little harder to fake, fake face recognition, but not impossible.
1: No, it's true, this, this is a limitation of biometrics. But there are ways to do it smarter.
0: So biometrics, it seems to me, is really about tying, is about finding people, uh, rather than about being absolutely sure about their identity. Well, I mean, it's two, there's two different ways to use biometrics. One is,
1: are, are you that person? And When you think into your iPhone, it doesn't know who you are, but I mean, are you the person who registered your fingerprint last month? The other way to use biometric is, who is this person? It's a very different type of pattern matching. And, and the, the algorithms are different, the, the stored database requirements are different. So you always think about, about that. But right, for law enforcement, it's not who are you, it's not are you that person, it's who is this, right? Who left that fingerprint? Who, uh, who, who is, who is that face belong to?
0: So you, the last, last topic I wanted to cover, because you had, you said something about this, you said, you know, there are embarrassing facts about you that cannot be forgotten.
1: Tell tell, it to the Europeans. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: The Europeans believe you have a right to have those things forgotten, and they have imposed that right uh, typically only on American companies, uh, uh, while their newspapers can continue to publish the facts. uh, Google is not supposed to link to them in their search results, uh, uh, and. uh, uh, the CNIL, the French uh, Data Protection Authority, just announced uh, that it had denied Google's uh, 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 appeal that it be allowed to continue to provide full search results on Google.com, which Americans use, uh, uh, and only restrict uh, and censor the results of Google.fr. And uh, the CNIL said, hey, you know, we're French, we know how to use Google.com, and we think it would be just an evasion of our rules, so to hell with you. Uh, and I think we may never know, uh, the day that Google starts to apply this to Google.com or whether they decide to fight this. Uh, I think Google will tell us
1: because, and this, this gets back to our first story. It's a difference of, of rules in different countries. And I, mean, I think Right to Be Forgotten is a bad name for this. It, 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 this is a press name. It's not what it actually is. And what, uh, what the government is saying is that there are I mean, the way to think about it is we are defined by the first ten hits on Google. My resume, your resume, is our first ten hits on Google. That's what it is. You might not, and that might not be accurate, fair. It, you can imagine situations where the first ten hits on Google put me not in a proper light.
0: And that's and, certainly the case for me.
1: <laughs> so people have said in Europe that, that you know, this isn't right, that this, this needs to be fixed. It's not about the information in the newspaper, it's about the first 10 hits on Google. So what what are the obligations of a for-profit company in this case? I, I don't know the answer here. I think it's a very complex case. and not as easy as right to be forgotten is dumb. We shouldn't do this. Information needs to be free. There's something here. There's something important here about who gets to write my resume and, and under what circumstances that can be changed. Uh, but again, we're seeing this this break between what between two different countries, what the laws are, and how do we in an international internet make this work? Does Google, a U.S. company, have to basically censor itself for the world because one country says it should? And it does, and and you see this with you know selling Nazi memorabilia on on uh, eBay. In some countries, that's illegal. You see that in in porn. We're seeing this again and again. I, I don't know how we solve this. I mean, we want the, we want the internet to be international, we want it to be, to be global, but we increasingly aren't able to have that. So I, 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 I the, the thing that bothers me
0: most about this, and, and we see it also in some other European uh, approaches to data protection, you know, attacking Facebook because they don't like NSA, I'm sure there's plenty of people at Facebook who don't like NSA, but the uh, uh, the the, uh, the attempt to sort of say you know uh, uh, change your ways or the puppy gets it uh, is you know uh, uh, deeply offensive. Uh, they're doing that with Google too. They're saying we want Google to ser- to uh, censor these results and not even and telling them how to do it. Just right,
1: so it's a magical. And, way. and
0: I actually I've started to do this. I've started to dig into the couple hundred of stories that have been uh, suppressed, links that have been suppressed. And, and you can actually usually figure out who asked for it uh, because you can see whose name disappeared. Uh, and what's really troubling about this is that we have a private lawmaker uh, whose standards are not at all clear. I and mean, we have Google suppressing convictions people who are convicted of crimes the conviction gets uh, suppressed arrests get suppressed people who have done things that would lead employers to not really want to uh hire them uh also are are finding themselves uh, um, uh suppressed so the loss of um, information and the the lack of clear standards on this
1: is really troubling
0: and I, th- I think that's right.
1: There's this notion of, of the law being really made by a private company. There's not a lot of transparency. There's not a lot of appeal. Which is, we're trying to. I mean, there are sites that, that dig into what what is being suppressed, but only because they're doing it do we know.
2: Yeah, and it's outsourcing censorship to a private company. It it runs <laughs> fundamentally well, and
0: it's a one way function, they, right? They, if if they don't censor, uh, really bad things happen to them. If they do censor, nothing happens, and they don't even tell people they did.
1: Right. Although they they censor very few, they've gotten tens of thousands of requests.
0: Oh, they're up. They're they're, they they they're over a hundred thousand. But they they they're they're censoring about half of them, roughly.
1: That's more than I thought. That that right. This doesn't end well.
0: All right. Um, uh, I think we're just about out of time. Uh, uh, For the, the record, we actually
1: agreed on most things, I think. Yeah,
0: that's, I know. Uh, it's a disappointment. Next time, <laughs> we'll take up Snowden again and uh, do it in detail. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, thanks to everyone who came. And uh, this has been Episode uh, 83 of the Stepto Cyberlaw Podcast, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, join us uh, next week. We're going to have uh, Mike Hayden from uh, uh, NSA coming in to talk to us. Thank you.